Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 58 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and with me as always is Lou Schwabach. Good evening, sir. How's it going? It's going. All right. So last week, for the beginning of March, we did marches. And so we're going to stay in that same vein and talk about classical music. Now, classical is a broad term that encompasses many different periods and styles of music, from Romantic to Baroque and Renaissance. It is characterized by oftentimes, being performed by a large symphony and including all kinds of instruments from the different families, woodwinds, brass, percussion, strings, and piano, though technically a string instrument, not really. Well, actually. I know technically it is. Right, if you want to play the technicality card, yeah, but... So, classical music has shown up in media across the board, from movies to video games, and it also appears in plenty of commercials, as well as cartoons. The Warner Brothers used a ton of classical music in the Looney Tunes shorts. Classical is often used as background music for personal relaxation or during, you know, like a get-together. It has even been used as a way of getting one's morale up or blood pumping. This week we'll be talking about some of our favorite classical pieces by a variety of composers. The only real restriction is that we'll be talking about older classical muses versus modern compositions. So if the composer was born in the 20th century, they likely won't make our list. So put on your parlor clothes and powdered wig... And get a snifter of brandy ready while we get this show started. <laughs> like we're delicate and uh, refined <laughs> enough to drink brandy out of a snifter. I, it's, the snifter, that's that big open... It's, yeah, it's the it, thing that you just... You like kind of hold your hand and you swirl shit around in it. Right, right. Why? It's, you know what? It's just like the, the people who do like their tasting of wine. They always like swirl it around and watch like watch it rain down the side. Well, you got to watch it bead or some shit. I'll just chug the shit. <laughs> So how you been, man? Been good, been good. Um, weather's treating us okay. And yeah, can't I complain. We've got a little bit more snow. We're supposed to get more this weekend. I, yeah, I guess. Did you get new glasses? I did get new glasses. Ah. I did, yeah. Um, and I'm just getting over pneumonia. So if you've been listening to the last couple episodes and it sounds like I'm breathing a little heavier than normal... It's not because he's all attracted to me or anything, thankfully. Right. I'm actually... I, it was right before I found out I had pneumonia, so... Um, I, I've done, what do, we, what do we do? We recorded two episodes. I recorded an episode with Al and I recorded an episode with Scott all in a three day period. Mm-hmm. And every one of them, like Al's was the best. Then we did ours. And then I recorded the next night with Scott. And the one I did with Scott is horrible. Is that the one before gaming? Yes. You, you were sounding kind of rough that night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just got my voice back about three days ago to full strength. And then we get to do two in a row. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. So, why don't we? I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of put out a blanket thing out here. Now, when I was doing this, when I was writing up all this stuff, I didn't really put a whole lot of my personal thoughts into them because it's classical music. Right. You can't really talk. I mean, we could sit here and talk composition. I know you've taken classes 
And I, I can I can fake my way through it. But um, I'm gonna put this out here. I did not do it that way. If anything, I didn't. I put more personal into it as far as like where I remember hearing it, where it's familiar from. Okay. I didn't go into like. I mean, I took music classes in college, and those are some of the most boring classes ever. Yeah. The yeah. teacher was cool, but and it gave me a good understanding of new pieces. But oh my god, I wanted to die. And what I did is I basically split it up. You know how we normally split it up, and we'll talk about. We'll either talk about the song or the artist, and we'll listen to the clip, and then we'll do... Yeah. And then we'll put a little personal into it. Well, I did both of those without the personal, because it's just like, it's classical music. If it's on my list, I like it. Right. So, that's just kind of the way I wrote this one up, but why don't we get liquored up? Alrighty. So, I brought Legunitis' Brown Sugar Sweet Release Ale. Now, this is a, um, a brewery out of, well... Pentaluma, California, and Chicago, Illinois. So We'll just say it's from Chicago. Sure. Now, they have this little thing around the edge of the label that i got to read to you. It says, We believe this special ale is something unique, feeding brown sugar or brown cane sugar to otherwise cultured brewery yeast is akin to feeding raw shark to your gerbil. It is unlikely to ever occur in nature without human intervention. And it looks weird besides. But it has happened, and now it's too late. Okay. So it's 10% alcohol by volume. Jesus. It's, um, I, I think it's 12 ounce. It doesn't really say. It does. Uh, where? Somewhere. It's got it. I don't think it does. I'm going to say it's 12 ounce, though, just based on everything. And then one other thing. Oh, yeah, 12 fluid ounces on the side here. But <laughs> it says beer speaks, people mumble. If they have enough 10, 10% alcohol beer, they do. Yeah, exactly. So, shall we, uh, ooh. It smells unique. Yeah. So, shall we? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's bitter. It is bitter. Wow. That's yeasty. Very yeasty. But as it sits on the back of the tongue, you lose that. It goes away. With time, yeah. It's kind of burning going down like a shot of hard alcohol. <laughs> I don't know if it's that bad, but I don't I, know. I, I, w- I would prefer the raw shark or gerbil. Well, I can't eat shark. At least I don't think I can. I've never tried, but... Well, well, we'll do a sushi night sometime with EMT standing by. <laughs> no. Uh, no. Uh, I'm going to say no on that. Uh, but, all right, so we should probably rate this. What What do you think? I'm going to go down. I'm going to go bar on this one. Yeah, I was not a I'll, fan. I'll drink it. I probably won't buy it again. But I'll drink it. Somebody offers it to me. I'll drink it. It's a little, it's a little on the hoppy side for me. But other than that, I don't mind the bitter. But I like... You know, darker beers than you do normally. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So to the part that I dread every week. It's trivia time! Alrighty, Let's see what we got. And this one, you may... I, I told you this before. You may get it. It's... Don't overthink it. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> okay. All right. You were currently 14 and 13. Correct. So Franz Litz, who actually was not one of our arts that we talked about, mm-hmm. which is part of why I did this. Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 has been in many features, oftentimes played by two characters who are fighting for the limelight or for control of the situation. When it is used, dueling piano style in the 1988 movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit, who are the two opposite characters who are vying for attention? I.e., who are playing the two pianos? Oh, God. Okay, do you want me to read it again? Yes, please. All right, Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 has been in a lot of features, often played by two characters fighting for control or limelight. When it was used dueling piano style in the 1988 Robert Zemeckis film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, who were the two opposite characters vying for attention or top billing? All right. 
right. I think I know this, but you might have to give me a little bit of leeway because I cannot think of one of the characters' name. But by the description I wrote down here, I think you'll know who I'm talking about. Okay. We'll find out in about, what, 45, 50 minutes or something? Something like that. Alrighty. Should we just jump into this then? Sounds like a plan. Alright. So, actually, you're going to start this one. Okay, I'm going to start off with Vivaldi, and that's going to be the Four Seasons Spring Movement. Now, Antonio Lucio Vivaldi, born in Venice, Italy in 1678. He was one of nine children. He was taught to play the violin by his father, who was a professional violinist, who was formerly a barber. So... Don't give up cutting hair to saw on the fiddle. Whatever it takes, I guess. His father, it's believed, was one of the founders of an association of musicians called the, oh God, Sauvignon de Musicisti di Santa Cecilia. Don't you love Italian? No. no. <laughs> and, and its president is believed to have taught Valdi his first lesson on composition. Vivaldi, who wasn't the healthiest of kids, suffered from a form of asthma which prevented him from playing woodwind instruments. Makes sense but he had no problem with the violin. He was ordained as a priest in 1703, which that I did not know, nicknamed Il Prete Rosso, which is the red priest, due to his ginger status. So, Voldy had red hair. Okay. But he only said mass a few times due to his bad health, but instead kept up with the violin. He officially became known as the master of the violin, and the same year he released his first collection of material in 1705, which included opus and sonatas. Through the years, he continued to release, but then starting in early 1713, moved over more to operas and concertos. The biggest concerto that he did was the Four Seasons Violin Concerti that were published in 1725. He was in high demand from nobility and royalty and was pulled in many directions. The changing musical styles of the times and his health caused financial issues later on in his life. Shortly after Charles VI died, he fell into poverty and died in 1741. Vivaldi's Spring from the Four Seasons is a bright and almost colorful sounding piece that really helps envision the season it's named for and gives almost kind of a joyous rebirth. Why don't we go ahead and... Actually, it's a good thing to listen to that. Why don't we go ahead and listen to a little bit of Spring and maybe it'll prompt us to have some Spring. It would be nice. really all I got about it. I mean, I, I enjoy this piece, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't have picked it, as we already determined. Right. It's one that you hear a lot in movies, and it's like a, almost like a parlor piece, where if you've got a whole bunch of stuffy people sitting around, this plays in the background, right. or, or they're having dinner at a French restaurant. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's a famous piece of work. I mean, I didn't know it by its name, and as soon as I hit play on, on YouTube, I'm like, oh, that one. There was a lot of them that were like this on here. Yes, I, I have a lot of those, but... The music is very light and airy, and it most definitely makes you think of why well, I put spring here, but it really just makes you kind of like light and 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 happy, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, the things, same things that we think about when we think about spring. Um, I really enjoy the violin violin in this piece of music. Uh, very little known fact: I used to play the violin. Shut up, really? I did, yeah, like in fifth and sixth grade in school. I'm guessing that since I don't ever, I've never seen a violin around your house, and I've never seen you even try to pick one up, that you weren't that good at it. I was actually not bad at it for a fifth or sixth grader, so you know, 
my well, mother, for an, for my an, mother, for thought, an American fifth or sixth grader. I mean, if right. you've been like a Chinese fifth or sixth grader, you've been playing it since you were like three months old. Right. My mother thought I was going to be like this famous violinist, but that was not going to happen. Lindsey Sterling, you are not. <laughs> so, you, you know, um, but I love violin music. And actually, Nikki, my wife, played violin all the way through college. I suppose that was a good conversational point. Yeah. yeah when you finally found out about it. <laughs> I knew she played. That's what I'm saying. When you found out, and it was like, oh, yeah, by the way, I did too. You know? Yeah, no, I, I don't talk about it a whole lot because it's like, eh, I did it for two years. and I played clarinet. Yeah? yeah? I played clarinet in seventh and eighth grade, I think, and or sixth and seventh, one other. It was in middle school. Went to solo ensemble, got my silver medal. I'm like, you know, it's the best I'm going to do. So that's it. I'm done. <laughs> exactly. So, all right, I'm going to jump into my first one here. All right. So Mozart, okay. uh, the Requiem Mass in D minor. So Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was a prolific and influential composer of the classical era. Born in Salzburg, Mozart showed uh, prodigious ability from his earliest childhood. Already competent on keyboard and violin, he composed from the age of five and performed before European royalty. At 17, Mozart was engaged as a musician at the Salzburg court, but grew restless and traveled in search of a better position. While visiting Vienna in 1781, he was dismissed from his Salzburg position. He chose to stay in the capital, where he achieved fame but little financial security. During his final years in Vienna, he composed many of his best-known symphonies, concertos and operas, and portions of the Requiem, which was largely unfinished at the time of his early death at the age of 35. I did not know he died at 35. No, I didn't either. I mean, he looked a hell of a lot older. Yeah, exactly. So, the circumstances of his early death have been much mythologized. That is a hell of a word. The cause of Mozart's death cannot be known with certainty, obviously. The official record has it as Hinzigi's Freisfieber, or severe miliary fever, referring to a rash that looks like millet seeds. Doesn't that sound fun? Depending on where the rash is, it sounds awful. More a description of the symptoms than a diagnosis. Researchers have posited that at least 118 causes of death, including acute rheumatic fever, streptococcal infection, trichinosis, influenza, mercury poisoning, and a rare kidney ailment. He was survived by his wife, Constance, and two sons. He composed more than 600 works, many acknowledged as pinnacles of symphonic, concertante, chamber, operatic, and choral music. He is among the most enduringly popular of classical composers, and his influence is profoundly profound on subsequent Western art music. Ludwig van Beethoven composed his own early works in the shadow of Mozart and Joseph Haydn wrote, Posterity will not see such a talent again in a hundred years. Let's get a little religion and listen to Mozart's Requiem. So the Requiem in D minor is a Requiem mass by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Mozart composed part of the Requiem in Vienna in late 1791, but was it was unfinished at his death on 5 December that same year. 
A complete version dated 1792 by Franz Xavier Sussmeyer was delivered to Count Franz von Wasseleg, who commissioned the piece for a requiem service to commemorate the anniversary of his wife's death on 14 February. The autograph manuscript shows the finished and orchestrated introit in Mozart's hand and detailed drafts of the Kyrie and the sequence dice array as far as the first eight bars of the lacrimosa movement and the offertory. It cannot be shown to what extent Susamer may have depended on now lost scraps of paper for the remainder. He later claimed the Sanctus and Angus die as his own. Walsig probably intended to pass the Requiem off as his own composition, as he is known to have done so with other works. The plan was frustrated by a public benefit performance for Mozart's widow, Constance. She was responsible for a number of stories surrounding the composition of the work, including the claims that Mozart received the commission from a mysterious messenger who did not reveal the commissioner's identity, and that Mozart came to believe that it was writing the Requiem for his own funeral. So, like we said, I like the piece of music. Uh, growing up Catholic, I'm sure you've heard this as many times as I have. I mean, it was Requiem in D is <laughs> pretty common. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts? What didn't he die from? I mean, honestly, like, like some kind of lady lady disease is about the only thing I can think of. Yeah, he didn't have vaginal warts. No, no. Um, it's a good classical piece. I mean, the choral and instrumental movements, it just sounds like it'd be very appropriate played at a mass or other type of worship. I don't remember this one being played at any of the masses I went to. Okay. Um, but then again, they were a lot more into singing hymns in our mass. Okay. So those I remember all of a sudden to hear the well, music it was, from those. It was, it was done more uh, on special occasions. Even not even, even like then? not even for like Easter, Christmas, or any of those other special yeah. occasion ones. I do not remember this one being played. Well, I grew up going to church um, at St. Matthew's, mm -hmm. and every year for Christmas at least we heard Mozart. See, and I did St. Michael's over on Sixth Street. I don't do not remember that. I just remember. Okay. I also remember the mass being like an hour and a half long, and you could, <laughs> you could always tell that mass was almost over when you got to communion. Yes. All right. What do you got next? All right. Next, I have Canon in D by Pachelbel. And just a little heads up on this one. If we're saying these names wrong, oh well. Get over it. I mean, if you are like the 1900th like descendant of Johann Pachelbel, come at me, bro. Seriously. Sorry. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, Johann Pachelbel was a German composer, teacher, and organist born in 1653 in Nuremberg. He received musical training in his youth from Heinrich Schwimmer, who later became a cantor at St. Great great grandfather of David. Yeah. Um, became a cantor at St. Sebaldus Church. Fellow composer Johann Matheson, because apparently Johann is a popular name, stated that Pachelbel exhibited exceptional aptitude in music and academics. He went to the University of Altdorf in 1669 and was appointed to chief organist that same year. Due to money troubles, he had to leave there and go to be go to Gymnasium Poeticum on a scholarship, started studying organ, organ music as well as more Italian and Catholic style music. He continued to be a prolific organist while moving throughout Europe. While in Eisenach and Erfurt, <laughs> okay, yeah, he became connected with the Bach family up to being the godfather of Johanna Juditha which is Johann Sebastian's sister, 
He taught Johann Christoph Bach, which is Johann Sebastian's older brother. So there, and lived with the family for a time, earning the rep as one of the most foremost German composers. Earning the rep as the touchiest uncle ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, despite the fact that he lived with the family, he actually only met Johann Sebastian once, and that was when Bach was around nine years old. Okay. So, I don't know. So even though he was super successful as an organist, composer, and teacher, he asked permission to leave Eifert for a better position and continued his travels in Germany, finally settling back in Nuremberg where he lived out the rest of his life, finally passing away in 1706. Pachelbel has mainly composed organ pieces and has had over 500 works attributed to him. Fugues, arias, preludes was where he mainly focused most of his stuff. He did a few toccatas and fantasias thrown in, just for good measure. And he composed some vocal pieces, and most of his work was considered religious due to his upbringing. Pachelbel's Canon, also known as Canon D, is arguably one of his best-known pieces. Let's just go ahead and take a quick listen, and we'll continue from there. Popular during his life, uh, Cannon went out of favor as time fast, but was, finger quotes, rediscovered in the early 1900s by Arthur Fielder, who first recorded it in 1940. It's a solid work that is often played at weddings, and depending on the instruments, can either really move you or it can really relax you. And that's just, that's what I got to say. All right. So this is the most famous of wedding music, at least in my family. Even though my wife and I were not married in a church, we used this piece of music as she walked down the aisle to stand at my side for the rest of our lives. It's really amazing what the sound of music can jostle in your mind. I just remember a beautiful woman dressed in white and a huge smile coming down in the bright afternoon light. And every time I hear this music, I see it over and over in my mind's eye. It's just, this piece of music is very moving for me. What I find, okay, two things I find funny about this. First thing is at the beginning of the episode, you talked about how it wouldn't be very personal. I call bullshit. Okay, second, this one is. Second thing, you said this is, did you just say that this is the most recognizable for a wedding? Because I would almost think that Mendelssohn's Wedding March would probably be a little bit more recognizable. I said this is the most famous of wedding music, to at you. least amongst my family. Okay, all right. Because I'm thinking, I'm going, wait a second, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, my, my family uses this, you know... All the weddings that I've gone to, most of my life, have this in it. So There's a couple decent remixes out there, too, actually. I've heard a few that <laughs> they did it on guitar, and then they did, like, dance remixes of Canon. Really? Like, this is actually pretty cool. All right, so let's move on. All right. So Nikolai Rimsky-Karskov was a Russian composer and a member of the group of composers known as the Five. He was a master of orchestration. His best-known orchestral compositions, Caparicicio Espangonol, the Russian Easter Festival Overture, and the symphonic suite Scheherazade, are staples of the classical music repertoire, along with suites and excerpts from some of his 15 operas. Scheherazade is an example of his frequent use of fairy tale and folk subjects. Rimsky-Korsakov 
believed as did fellow composer Miley or Mili Bakariv and critic Vladimir Stazov in developing a nationalistic Moskaliski style of classical music. Obviously, uh, Russian. <laughs> Just a little. The style employed Russian folk song and lore along with exotic harmonic, melodic, and rhythmic elements in a practice known as musical orientalism and eschewed traditional Western compositional methods. Rimsky-Karskakov appreciated Western music techniques after he became a professor of musical composition, harmony, and orchestration at the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1871. He undertook a rigorous three-year program of self-education and became a master of Western methods, incorporating them alongside the influences of Mikhail Glinka and fellow members of the Five. His techniques of composition and orchestration were further enriched by his exposure to the works of Richard Wagner. Let's take a flight with the bumblebees. So Flight of the Bumblebees, or Bumblebee, I'm sorry, is an orchestral interlude written by Nikolai Rimsky-Karkasov, or Karsakov. God, that's a hard name. I hate Russian names. They're almost as bad as Italian names. Well, French names aren't that much greater. For his opera, The Tale of, the, of Tsar Sultan, composed in 1899 to 1900. Its composition is intended to musically evoke the seemingly chaotic and rapidly changing flying pattern of a bumblebee. Despite the piece being a rather incidental part of the opera, it is today one of the most familiar classical works because of its frequent use in popular culture. The piece closes Act 3, Tableau 1, during which the magic swan bird changes Prince Givadon Sultanovich, the Tsar's son, into an insect so that he can fly away and to visit his father, who does not know that he is alive. Although in the opera, the swan bird sings during the first part of the flight, her vocal line is melodically uninvolved and easily omitted. This feature, combined with the fact that the number decisively closes the scene, made easy extraction as an orchestral concerto piece possible. So, everybody's familiar with this. Once you, once you hear the music, mm -hmm. you'll know exactly what you're looking at. Right. I really enjoy this piece of music. It's very upbeat, very... Happy? Um, but what do you think? The first thing that comes to mind when I hear this, aside from the Green Hornet, um, is just how challenging this would be to play. Oh, it would be horrid. Um, when it's, it's a really fast piece, when it's played on a violin or other string instrument, it does sound like a bee that's flitting all over the place. It's just, again, just super challenging. It's just a fun piece overall. I really don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about it. I think uh, Korsakov did a good job. Okay, what do you got? All right, next, you had mentioned this guy, so let's go ahead and get him out of the way, and that's going to be Richard Wagner. Okay. We're going to talk about a little Ride of the Valkyries. Wilhelm Richard Wagner, um, good that he went by his middle name, um, <laughs> was a German composer. Imagine that. Composer-conductor born in 1813 in Leipzig. That's how you pronounce that? Yep, Leipzig. All right. 
His love of theater came from an early age. His stepfather, Ludwig Geyer, was an actor and playwright, and young Wagner performed on stage. He received some training on the piano when he was in school, but had a hard time playing the scales, so he rather he just decided to play by ear instead. Well, I can't read music, so I'm just going to play everything by ear. Rough life. Yeah, I think that's actually harder to do than reading music. Right. Um, he took lessons in harmony in 1828, part of which was listening to Beethoven's 7th and 9th symphonies. He was also a big fan of Mozart's Requiem. Later, while enrolled in the university, he tutored under Thomas Cantor Theodor Weinlig, who was so impressed by Wagner's talent that he refused payment for the lessons. I'm going to call bullshit on that. <laughs> That's what the story says. I know. I, I get that, but I'm still going to call bullshit on that. So he created, he completed his first opera, Define, The Fairies, at age 20 and continued to compose despite a huge debt that he was constantly on the run from. Due to his political leanings, he was exiled from Germany, spending time in Italy, France, and Switzerland before finally the exile was lifted in 1862. He returned and produced plenty of new works. His final opera, Parsifal, was released in 1882 and in early 80. It was released in 1882 and in early 1883, Richard Wagner died of a heart attack. Throughout his career, he was mainly known for his operas such as The Flying Dutchman, Die Hochzeit, The Wedding, and Das Rheingold, which is the Rheingold. Yet he produced a ton of non-opera work. Ride of the Valkyries comes from the beginning of Act Three of Die Valkyrie, and the second of four operas that made up Der Ring des Neblingen. Oh, bless you. Exactly. It does have lyrics, however, it's mainly, mainly ever heard as an instrumental. Let's go ahead and get swept away by the Ride of the Valkyries. It actually has lyrics? Yeah, technically. I've never heard them. Neither have I, because it's always as a as a now, uh, I, now, now you kind of want to go find it, don't you? Yeah. So, it's a powerful sweeping piece that's meant to invoke the images of fighters being guided by Valkyries to their final home, the Great Hall of Valhalla. For me, there are three things that come up when I hear this piece. The first one is the wrestler Daniel Bryan's entrance music. The arranged... <laughs> you know, by Jim Johnston. I love the original, and the arrangement is just amazing. The second is from the 1980 movie, The Blues Brothers. Um, yes. Yes, because towards the end of the movie, when Jake and Elwood are being chased through Milwaukee and Chicago by the by the Illinois Nazis, this place plays in the background. I love it, and it just brings a grin to my face as it is now just thinking about it. Now, the last one is actually the very first thing that comes to mind, and that's not Apocalypse Now, but it's something a little bit more animated kill the wabbit kill the wabbit kill the wabbit kill the wabbit that's right bugs bunny and elmer fudd during 1957 warner brothers short what's opera doc uh, clever <laughs> elmer fudd appears as the demigod siegfried and follows wabbit twacks up to a hole where he jabs a spear and repeatedly sings Kill the Wabbit to the familiar tune. It's classical music, it's Norse mythology, and it's a bit of Bugs Bunny and Drag, and you've got yourself a classical cartoon that can't be missed. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree with you on that. And you kind of took my thunder here. I'm like, are we watching wrestling suddenly? <laughs> I feel a yes chant coming on. Oh, I wish. So, okay, 
in all seriousness, I can understand why Wagner was so well-liked. Unfortunately, he was Hitler's favorite composer, and that kind of hurt his legacy, I think, in all reality. The guy could definitely write great music. The piece takes you to the highs and lows and on a chase or an escape, whatever side of, the, of it you're on, but it just makes you feel good. It's a great piece of music. Absolutely. There's really not a whole heck of a lot to say about no, it. No, not really. So we got next. All right. So up next, we've got Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. So Ludwig von Beethoven was a German composer and pianist, a crucial figure in the transition between the classical and romantic eras in Western art music. He remains one of the most famous and influential of all composers. And the deafest. Well, yes. He was best known. Compositions include nine symphonies five piano concertos, one violin concerto, 32 piano sonatas, 16 string quartets, his great mass, the Missa Salamnus, and one opera. And a partridge and a Fideli tree. No, Fidelio. No. Oh, okay. Good guess, though. Born in Bonn, then the capital of the Electorate of Cologne and part of the Holy Roman Empire, Beethoven displayed his musical talents at an early age and was taught by his father, Johann von Beethoven, and by composer and conductor Christian Gottlob Neif. Everybody was named Johann back then. I guess. At the age of 21, he moved to Vienna, where he began studying compositions with Joseph Hayden and gained a reputation as a virtuoso pianist. He lived in Vienna until his death. By his late 20s, his hearing began to deteriorate, and by the last decade of his life, he was almost completely deaf. In 1811, he gave up conducting and performing in public, but continued to compose. Many of his most admired works come from these last 15 years of his life. A bit of Beethoven's seventh, if you will. The Symphony No. 7 in A major is a symphony in four movements composed by Ludwig von Beethoven between 1811 and 1812. While improving, while improving his health in the Bohemian spa town of Teplice, the work is dedicated to Count Moritz von Fries. At its premiere, Beethoven was noted as remarking that it was one of his best works. The second movement, Aguilaretto, was the most popular movement and had to be encored. The instant popularity of the Allegretto, or Allegretto resulted in its frequent performance separated from the complete symphony. So, it's Beethoven, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, if you you talk to anybody who says classical artist or classical composer, betcha top five, if not top three. Yeah, yeah. Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky. Mozart. Mozart. I mean, that's, again, too... Vivaldi actually would be up there, too, most likely. You know, that's even without thinking too hard of it. That's just right off the top of the head. Yeah, yeah. And this is not our style of music. I mean, we both appreciate classical mm-hmm. music, but it's not something that, at least I don't sit down every day and listen to classical music. No, I mean, I'm not going to turn off a good piece because there's certain times when, again, too, it can either energize you or it can relax oh, you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, what do you got next? We're going to go visit the Hall of the Mountain King by Grieg. Now, Edvard... Hagrup Grieg. Hey, his name's not Johan. No, but he's Norwegian. Okay. 
was a pianist and composer who was born in 1843. His mother was a music teacher and taught him how to play piano at age six. I was taught how to not poop my pants when I was six. You know, seriously, I mean, all these, you, get, you get all these stories about, like, I learned how to play violin when I was three, or I learned how to do this. I'm like, I was not even thinking that high level at age six. You know, there's these kids now, they're like, you know, kids are born now, and their parents are like, well, where are we going to send them to kindergarten? And my where mom was like, opening. my mom is like, get your finger out of your nose. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, exactly. So when he was 15, a family friend, Ole Bull, or Ole Bull, I mean, I'm not making this up, a well-known Norwegian violinist recognized Edvard's talent and talked his parents into sending him to Let's Pig Conservatory. That would be, be Ale, if it's Norwegian. Okay. Well, he's an old bull. <laughs> Where he studied piano and organ. By the time he was 18, he had survived two separate life-threatening lung diseases, pleurisy and tuberculosis. Holy shit! Yeah, by 18. So that's what you get for studying things when you turn six. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I didn't start early and I didn't get TB. His life was really never the same, but he still studied music and was in and out of spas and sanatoriums, which were facility, facilities for care of long-term illnesses. His first catalog composition, a piano piece called, oh my God, Lyrics, um, Larvix Polka. Okay. Yeah. Was played with reverence and he continued to work and travel. Later on, he married his first cousin, which is kind of icky. And dis- but not uncommon back then. Right. Despite his questionable choice in music, and women, I should say, his compositions were well-received, and he was influential enough to have some big names in his camp. Hey, maybe his cousin was hot as shit. Just as long as he didn't breed with her. Well, keep reading. Let's find out. <laughs> Litzt, who had never met Grieg, wrote a testimony for him to get a travel grant where they finally did meet and worked on Litzt's conducting and Grieg's orchestration. Twenty years later, he met Tchaikovsky in Litzpig, and was starstruck while Tchaikovsky thought highly of Grieg's music. He received two honorary doctorates, one from the University of Cambridge and the other from the University of Oxford. Not, Not bad universities. Mm-hmm. During, just before the turn of the century, he canceled his contracts, concerts in France in protest of the Dreyfus affair that was going on at the time. Due to his position, he was sent a ton of hate mail that soon died down. Prior to his passing, he met up with composer and pianist Percy Granger in 1907, finally an easy name. <laughs> who was a huge fan of his work. They formed a bond, and Grieg was quoted saying, I have written Norwegian peasant dances that no one in my country can play. And here comes this Australian who can play them as they ought to be played. He's a genius that we Scandinavians cannot do other than love. Wow. That's, that's yeah. Pretty damn high praise. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit later that year, Grieg succumbed from heart failure after suffering for quite a, quite a while. His funeral drew between thirty and 40,000 people. That's a hell of a cost for the after yeah. after funeral dinner. Yeah, no shit. And and they played his own funeral march in memory of Ricard Nordrock, as well as Chopin's Piano Sonata Number no. Two, both per his own wishes. In the Hall of the Mountain King is part of incidental, aka background score for Heinrich Ibsen's nineteen or I'm sorry, eighteen sixty seven play Peer Gint. It's been used in a ton of different mus- It's been used in a ton of different mediums as most classical has been, including movies, previews, and video games. Metal artists have even covered it, and it's even been used as a theme for a television show, the intro for Dancing with the Stars. Naughty, I wish I was making that up. Wow. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen, then we'll talk a little bit more about it.
So the piece starts off slow and plodding, kind of unassuming. It starts to speed up, the volume increases, and then right at the apex, the coaster starts downward slide and boom, it hits you with full force. The whole piece is as if someone was sneaking around where they shouldn't be, finally gets caught and shit goes down. That's just when it kicks in. And I don't know why I've always gravitated this one. Could it be that it was featured in a very old, terribly difficult Atari game called Mountain King in 1983? Maybe. Maybe it was because a certain animated cartoon bumbling detective used it as their theme song? Maybe. Or it could be that I just really like it, and I love the energetic part of that last half of it. That's that's all I have to say about that. Alright, so I didn't know this by the name, but it didn't take too long to figure out what I was listening to. It's, it's a great piece of music. It reminds me of, like, music from a spy movie or Inspector Gadget or something like that. I really, really like this piece of music. I don't have a lot to say about it, but... And that was the bumbling detective, if you didn't figure you know, that when out. You know, when you said that, I'm like, ah! Because I was like, when I was listening to him, I'm like, is that what the, was that the Inspector Gadget theme song? And mm-hmm. So I'm like, and I didn't want to be like, they used it for Inspector Gadget, and then you'd be like, no, they did not. <laughs> so I'm just like, it, it reminded me of that for obviously very good reason. Right, and it's it's just a really good piece of music. No, and Inspector Gadget was a fun-ass show to watch. I'm just saying. It was. I loved it. I loved the cartoon. I, I have that cartoon on DVD, and I've... And I've actually, go- the, they made more than one movie, but the first movie was not too bad. The, uh, Matthew Broderick, I think, yeah. was in the first one, and then they put French Stewart in the second one. I'm yeah, like, it was, really? it was bad. Yeah. So right. what do you got next? So up next, I've got uh, Bach, uh, his piece called Air. So Johann Sebastian Bach was a German composer and musician of the Baroque period. Hey, if it's not Baroque, don't, don't fix, fix it. it. He's known for instrumental compositions such as the Brandenburg Concertos and the Goldberg Variations, and vocal music such as the St. Matthew Passion and the Mass in B Minor. Since the 19th century, Bach revival has been generally regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time. The Bach family already counted several composers when Johann Sebastian was born as the last child of a city musician in Eisnach. Having become an orphan at age 10, he lived for five years with his eldest brother, after which he continued his musical formation in Lundberg. From 1703, he was back in Thurnegja, working as a musician for Protestant churches in Arnstadt and Mulhausen, and for longer stretches of time at Counts in Weimar, where he expanded his repertoire for the organ, and Kothen, where he was mostly engaged with chamber music. From 1723, he was employed as Thomas Cantor, or Cantor at St. Thomas, in Leipzig. He composed music for the principal Lutheran churches of the city, and for its university student ensemble, Collegium Musicum. From 1726, he published some of his keyboard and organ music. In Leipzig, as had happened in some of his earlier positions, he had a difficult relation with his employer, a situation that was little remedied when he was granted the title of court composer by Elector of Saxony and King of Poland in 1736. In the last decades of his life, he reworked and extended many of his earlier compositions. He died of complications after eye surgery in 1750. Let's take a look at Box Air.
Dude, fucking eye surgery? In 1750. Oh my god, they can't even do it right now. How would they do it back then? I don't know. I read that and I'm like, who, how, what has to be wrong with your eyes? Yeah, how messed up do you have to be that you're going to give somebody at that time an option to fix it? And it's probably going to be like the barber. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's where the striped barber poles came from. Yeah, right? yeah. So, but Bach's third orchestral suite in D major, composed in the first half of the 18th century, has and has air as its second movement, following its French overture opening movement. The suite is composed for three trumpets, timpani, two oboes, strings, two violin parts, and a viola part, and basso continuo. In the second movement of the suite, however, only the strings and the continuo play. This is the only movement of the suite where all other instruments are silent. The music of the air is written down on four staves for first violins, second violins, violas, and continuo. The interweaving melody lines of the high strings with their scattering of accidentals contrast with the pronounced rhythmic drive in the bass. It was a great piece of music. What, oh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a really relaxing piece that's used, again, as chamber music because of its calm demeanor and just a, a tempo that just flows. I mean, just like a you know, gentle breeze, that's how this piece works. I mean, it just does. Yeah. And that's... Really, I don't have a whole lot to say about that one. All right, so what are you, what are you doing next? We're going to go Bach to Bach here. I like it! Aha! So there's, there, we should probably throw this out there. There are two composers that we each picked. Right. And we're just going to do them Bach to Bach. <laughs> so go ahead, sir. All right, so I obviously did another Bach piece, because if I didn't do that one, it would sound really stupid, what we just played around with. I did Toccata and Fugue in D minor, which is BWV565. And that's not like latitude, longitude. It's what it's called, I guess. Yeah. So J.S. Bach, German guy, born in Eisenach. He pretty much went over a lot of the stuff here. A couple things that I had on here that I found were interesting. That he had a, such a good reputation on being in the organ that he was actually an inspector. Of that, organs? Yeah. Which, he was an organ inspector? If you look at my notes, it even says ha-ha next to it because I'm, <laughs> I'm a two-year-old and I find an organ inspector to be funny. I, I do as well, though, so. So... And then, let's see, what else here? When he was, let's see, it wasn't Paradise when he was in Arnstadt because he didn't care for his choir singers. He called one of them out by being sucky, and the guy came after Bach with a stick. <laughs> and, a stick? Yeah, and rather than the student being pressed charges for it, he was acquitted, and Bach was ordered to chill the fuck out on the student. Nice. Seriously. So the guy who was chased after, the victim, was the one who told he had to calm down. Nice. He was asking for it, apparently. So the legal system back then didn't work either. Uh, let's see. What else do I have that's on here? He was concertmeister with a K, because that's how Germans did shit. Um, he somehow pissed off the Weimar in 1714, so he was put in jail for a month, but then unfavorably dismissed. Uh, hooked up with Prince Leopold in 1717. Most of his music at that time still hadn't been religious, but it was still played at masses. Uh, let's see here. A few years later, he was appointed Thomas Cantor, the St. Thomas Church Cantor, and had jurisdiction over four churches. He continued with this appointment in addition to receiving several honorary appointments for the next 27 years until he passed away in 1750, again from complications stemming from an eye surgery. Just We're going to repeat this again because this is fucked up. Uh, eye surgery in the 1700s. You know, they told me I could get rid of my glasses with LASIK, and I'm like, no, you're not shooting lasers into my eyes. 
I would trust them now more so than then. I mean, well, but, yeah, more than 1750. But even now, it's like it's a hard decision. To at make. least it's a laser. I mean, they still actually do eye surgeries with scalpels, like those vision corrections. They actually slice part of your eye, and I'm just like, <laughs> no, I want knifeless laser. But moving on, so to cut on fugue. This may be a piece that not a lot of people would recognize by their name, but the second they hear it, you're going to know what it is. So let's see if you are one of those many that didn't know the title, but recognized it as soon as you heard it. Exactly. Now, this one is, it was an organ piece composed in the 1700s. The reason that I say it this way is because it's disputed. Some scholars say it was as early as 1704. Others say that it was sometime in 1750, just before he passed away. It's a hell of a butter zone. Yeah. You know, so somewhere, somewhere in 40 years, it was done. So regardless of when it was composed, I'm very glad they did. This piece is nearly synonymous with either Halloween or something scary, per Chad's prior comment. Who cannot hear this and think about something creepy? Um, it's been played on piano with a full orchestra. It's pretty awesome, but with a pipe organ, it is spine-tingling spine and just amazing at the same time. I mean, honestly, any church you go into, I in my music class in college, we actually went to one of the local churches, and our teacher played this on the pipe organ. And I'm just like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah, yeah. So this is creepy music but it's that good kind of creepy you know it's that it makes your your spine tingle but it's still fun it makes your hair stand up but you still have a grin on your face yeah it's, it's a great piece of music i really enjoy bach and since you picked your music first you got this one because this was actually the one i was going to pick but then i'm like it's already been done so this is my this is my favorite piece of bach music it's just a lot of fun uh, it gives you the chills, and you know Halloween is here, or the monster's on the way. It's It got used a lot, like, in the 60s and 70s, and, like, the really cheesy horror flicks and things like that. Well, and some of the cartoons, too, like Scooby-Doo oh, yeah. type stuff, and, oh, yeah. and some, and any Bugs Bunny one you can go through. Honestly, I'll bet you, of our list of songs that we have here, you could probably go to Warner Brothers' catalog and find at least half, if not more. I think you're probably right. I would I would wager at least half if not. And I'm not, guessing it's because you don't have to pay royalties on most of them. Well, not only that, but also the fact is that part of the reason why I'm sure you and I knew partially about classical music is because we watched it in fucking cartoons. Quite possibly. <laughs> so what do you got next? All right. I've got uh, Danse Macabre by Charles Camille Saint-Saëns. He was a French composer, organist, conductor, and pianist of the Romantic era. His best-known works include Introduction and Rondo Capricosio in 1863, the Second Piano Concerto, 1868, the First Cello Concerto, 1872, Danse Macabre, uh, 1874. I don't know why I went Spanish there all of a sudden. <laughs> the opera, it was funny. The opera Samson and Delia, 1877, and the Third Violin Concerto in 1880. 
and the third Oregon Symphony in 1886, and the Carnival of the Animals 1886. Okay, I'm through my list. Saint-Saëns was a musical prodigy, making his concert debut at the age of 10. Christ. After studying at the Paris I made macaroni things when I was 10. I'm not sure I was allowed to use the stove at 10. <laughs> I made, like, grilled cheese sandwiches, I think, and, like, scrambled eggs when I was 10. Yeah, I probably. thought that was a big achievement. Yeah, well, I probably did, too, because my, my mom taught me how to cook early. But anyway, um, at the Paris Conservatory, and he followed a conventional career as a church organist, first at Saint-Marie, Paris, uh, and from 1858, La Mandeline, the official church of the French Empire. After leaving the post 20 years later, he was a successful freelance pianist and composer, in demand in Europe and the Americas. As a young man, Saint-Saëns was enthusiastic for the most modern music of the day, particularly that of Schumann, or, uh, Schumann Litz, and Wagner. Although his own compositions were generally, generally within a conventional classic tradition, he was a scholar of musical history and remained committed to the structure worked out by early French composers. This brought him into conflict in his later years with composers of the Impressionist and Dodecaphonic schools of music. Although there were neoclassical elements in his music, foreshadowing works by Stravinsky and Lessy, he was most often regarded as a reactionary in the decades around the time of his death. Let's danse macabre. So Danse Macabre is a tone poem for orchestra written in 1874 by the French composer Camille Saint-Saëns. It is in the key of G minor. It started out in 1872 as an art song for a voice and piano with a French text by the poet Henri Cazalis, which is based upon an old French superstition. In 1874, the composer expanded and reworked the piece into a tone poem, replacing the vocal line with a solo violin. According to legend, Death appears at midnight every year on Halloween. Death calls forth the dead from their graves to dance for him while he plays his fiddle, here represented by a solo violin. His skeletons dance for him until the rooster crows at dawn, when they must return to their graves until the next year. The piece opens with a harp playing a single note, D, twelve times, the twelve strokes of midnight, which is accompanied by the soft chords from the string section. The solo violin enters playing the triante, which is known as the Diabolus in Musica, the devil in the music. During the medieval and Baroque eras, consisting of an A and an E-flat, an example of scordatura tuning, the violinist's E-string has actually been turned down to an E-flat to create the dissonant tritone. The first theme is heard on a solo flute, followed by the second theme, a descending scale on the solo violin which is accompanied by soft chords from the string section. The first and second themes, or fragments of them, are then heard throughout the various sections of the orchestra. The piece becomes more energetic, and at its midpoint, right after a contrapuntal section, based on the second theme, there is a direct quote played by the woodwinds of Dice 
Ardis Are, a Gregorian chant from the Requiem that is melodically related to the work's second theme. The Dies Are is presented unusually in a major key. After the section, the piece returns to the first and second themes and climaxes with a full orchestra playing very strong dynamics. Then there is an abrupt break in the texture and the coda represents the dawn breaking. A cockerel's crow, played by the oboe, and the skeletons returning to their graves. The piece makes particular use of the xylophone to imitate the sounds of the rattling bones. Saw Saints use a similar motif in the fossils movement of the Carnival of the Animals. I was to say, that sounded very much like Peter and the Wolf and the Carnival of Animals, too, yep. because with different animals being, um, with different instruments and things like yep. that, which I'm pretty sure that the Peter and the Wolf is a little more modern piece. So Yeah, probably. Which, maybe if we do our second one, that could possibly make it on there. Right. Um, which is a really good one, too, actually. So, sorry to interrupt on this one. No, that's fine. No, um, no, this was a good one. In fact, this made me think of the Adams Family. Yeah, kind of. It made me think of the Mamushka. Remember from the Adams Family movie with uh, Raul Julia and yeah. everything else? Just kind of that, obviously a dance, because that's what he was going for. And just a creepy fester dance, essentially, <laughs> which... He hit the nail right on the head, so... Yeah. It's a good piece. This is one I didn't actually hear before, um, but I'm glad that you picked it because um, it's nice to expand a little bit, and it was, a good, it was a good one to hear. All right, so what do you got next? Next one, we got a little bit of William Tell Overture. Oh, gosh. More Italian names, because we, we love those. We uh, do. Giacchino Antonio Rossini was an Italian composer known mainly for operas born in 1792. He came from a musical family. His dad was a horn player and a slaughterhouse inspector. So I guess he had to back up on, like, fall back on some skills. And mom was a singer. He started off his official musical education as a boy, learning the harpsichord from an instructor that Rossini didn't really respect. That ended, and he was apprenticed to a blacksmith, but continued to seek out his music fortune. He found a music master that taught him how to sight read, play, uh, sight read, play, accompanying parts in the piano and sing well enough to go solo in church at the age of 10. What is it with these people? No shit, right? Maybe that's why we're still talking about them. Yeah, that's probably it. Now, he also studied playing the horn and was very proficient. He wrote his first opera, Demetrio El Demetrio e Polibio, between the ages of 13 and 14, but it actually wasn't performed until well after when he was 20, where it premiered as his sixth opera. Later, he studied cello, which he picked up almost immediately. And Counterpoint, while in Bologna, where he was known as Il Tedeschino, which is a little German because of his, demotion, his devotion to Mozart. His first produced opera, La Cambriale di Matrionio, the marriage contract, was done in Venice when he was 18. It was six years later when his most famous opera, The Barber of Seville, was produced, of which Beethoven stated, via writing due to his deafness, Ah, Rossini, so you're the composer of Barber of Seville. I congratulate you. It will be played as long as Italian opera exists. Never try to write anything else but opera bofa, comic opera. Any other style would do violence to your nature. Okay. Wow. So Rossini continued to write operas, including Otello, The Thieving Magpie, and Cinderella before moving to Paris. While there, he composed the grand opera Guillaume Tell, William Tell, which brought his opera writing career to an end. He did odd compositions after that, most of which were just as revered as his operatic material. He passed away on Friday the 13th in 1868. He was one of, if not the most popular opera composers in history, being known as the Italian Mozart. That's pretty high praise. Right, exactly. 
Now, William Tell Overture, along with Barbara Seville, are two of the most common uses of, mu- of his music in movies and cartoons. The Overture comes from the opera of the same name. It was first released in 1829 and is well-known and recognized by being played almost definitively by a brass band. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen, and I know you know where you're going to hear this from. So first thing I think of when I hear this is four words, hi-ho, silver, away. Yep. Because popular in its own right, it gained new appreciation when it was used as the theme song for the Lone Ranger show in the 1950s. The piece is just really stirring. It gets your blood pumping for whatever may show up. I dare say that this would almost work as well as a bugle playing Reveille to get you up in the morning. Yeah. If if this was played loud and like with a really good brass section... It would just be like, okay, I'm up, I'm up. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, yeah. So, all right, can we can we try something here? Sure. All right, so I want you to take this apple and stand over there against the wall with it on your head, okay? Well, at least it's on my head instead of in my mouth. Now, I have a bow and an arrow set here. Let's see if I can shoot it off your head. You ready? Sure. Of course I'm not going to do this. It's funny, though, that you were willing to let me try. In all seriousness, I really like this music that... Everyone is going to recognize. It's the Lone Ranger music. I mean, I really enjoy the quick pace and the simple instrument arrangement. I mean, there's a lot going on here, but there's not that many instruments to it. No, it's, again, it's basically solid brass, and it's brass balls, basically. Yeah, it's it's to the wall. I mean, if you modernize that, you're looking at something like ACDC or Metallica or something that's, I mean, it's... Solid. It's it fast. It's hard. In fact, I, that would be interesting to see if they have like a, a guitar version of this. Oh, I'm sure well. somebody did. That might, you know, any listeners out there, if you know of a guitar or hard rock version of this one, send it through because that would be pretty badass, actually. Yeah, I think it would be. All right, what do you got next? So up next, I've got Handel's Water Music. So George Frederick Handel was a German, later British, Baroque composer who spent the bulk of his career in London. Becoming well-known for his operas, oratorios, oratorios, yeah, anthems, and organ concertos. Now I want oreos. <laughs> Handel received important training in Halle and worked as a composer in Hamburg and Italy before settling in London in 1712. He became a naturalized British subject in 1727. He was strongly influenced both by the great composers of the Italian Baroque and by the Middle German polyphonic choral tradition. Within 15 years... Handel had started three commercial opera companies to supply the English nobility with Italian opera. Musicologist Wil- Winton Dean writes that his operas shows his operas show that Handel was not only a great composer, he was a dramatic genius of the first order. As Alex as Alexander's Feast 1736 was well received, Handel made a tradition to a transition to English choral works. After his success with Messiah in 1742, he never composed an Italian opera again. Almost blind and having lived in England for nearly 50 years, he died in 1759. A respected and rich man. 
His funeral was given full state honors, and he was buried in Westminster Abbey in London. Born the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach and Domenico Scarlatti, Handel is regarded as one of the greatest composers of the Baroque era, with works such as Water Music, Music for the Royal Fireworks, and Messiah remaining steadfastly popular. One of his four coronation anthems, Zadok the Priest, 1727, composed for the coronation of George II, has been performed at every subsequent British coronation, traditionally during the Sovereign's anointing. Another of his English oratorios, Solomon, 1748, has also remained popular with this Sinfonia that opens Act Three, known more commonly as the arrival of the Queen of Sheba, featuring at the 2012 London Olympics opening ceremony. Handel composed more than 40 operas in over 30 years, and since the late 1960s, with the revival of Baroque music and historically informed musical performance, interest in Handel's operas have grown. Let's get a Handel on water music. So the water music is a collection of orchestral movements, often published as three suites, composed by George Frederick Handel. It premiered on 17 July 1717 in response to King George I's request for a concert on the River Thames. The water music is scored for a relatively large orchestra, making it suitable for outdoor performance. The first performance of water music suites is recorded in the Daily Courant, the first British daily newspaper. At about 8 p.m. on Wednesday, 17 July, 1717, King George I and several aristocrats boarded a royal barge at Whitehall Palace for an excursion up the Thames toward Chelsea. The rising tide propelled the barge upstream without rowing. Another barge, provided by the City of London, contained about 50 musicians who performed Handel's music. Many other Londoners also took to the river to hear the concert. According to the Courant, the whole river in a manner was covered, with boats and barges. On arriving at Chelsea, the king left his barge, then returned to it at about 11 p.m. for the return trip. The king was so pleased with water music that he ordered it to be repeated at least three times, both on the trip upstream to Chelsea and on the return until he landed again at Whitehall. So it's a it's one of my favorite pieces of classical music. It ranks up there. It's just, it's airy, it's flowy, it's... It's like you're listening to water. It is, and it's it, it really is. This is another one that's kind of the definition of chamber music. Yes. Because this, you can almost picture a bunch of rich, stuffy people gathered together with this playing in the background. It's like... As if, they take the barge up the Thames. Exactly. I mean, in any movie, this music's going to be playing when you've got like the hoity-toity get-togethers or whatever else. I know, but isn't it great to be king? I'm going to take a ride up the river, and I feel like music. Get the whole group on there. They get a barge of 50 musicians to play them up the fucking river. Exactly. And then if it's like t- t- uh, Titanic, they go down with the ship. Yeah. The hell. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it, it's a great piece. It almost seems audibly pretentious, though. It's almost like it's like an, an audible version of I'm better than you. 
Because usually it's rich people who are listening to this. Yeah, I don't know if I get that from it, but I, I can see where you're going with that. Because, again, too, it's like like any movie you see, you see like, like oh, this is my place, oh, I have three other summer places, and this music's playing where they got all the other people with, like, little wine glasses and shit. It's like, you know what, screw you, give me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, great piece. Uh, it's an excellent piece. All right, so what do you got up next, man? All right, we're going to go a twofer here, and that's going to be our finishing numbers, and that's going to get a little Tchaikovsky in our house. All right. So... Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. We're just going to call him Peter. So Pete was a Russian composer of the Romantic period, born in 1840 in Vatkinsk. He started his musical journey with piano lessons at age five. By age six, he was already fluent in German and French. Of course he was. An overachiever. Within three years, he became good, if not better, than reading sheet music than his teachers. Even though his folks supposedly kind of were behind him, they backed off and pushed him towards working as being a civil servant. Typical Russians. Do something. Do something that helps the, the helps Mother Russia. Exactly. So during his education and tutoring, no one thought much would really become... Okay. During his education and tutoring, no one thought much would really become of him, and he was advised to stay his course with civil service. He finished his three-year finger quotes tour, and by that time... The, medical, the Russian Musical Society was formed to foster native talent. He was enrolled and studied harmony and counterpoint, which helped make Tchaikovsky the professional he was known as altogether. He learned more styles than just Russian. He actually learned some Western styles as well and composed his first symphony, Symphony Number no. 1, imagine that, in G minor, which is Winter Daydreams. His instructors really didn't care for it. In fact, they actually kind of told him he was a no-talent ass clown. Wow. Uh, in in Russian words, of course. Yeah. Um, so he kind of buckled down and continued to compose while acting as a music critic. He praised Beethoven, thought Brahms was overrated, and thought Schumann was poorly orchestrated. And despite not caring overly for their work, he met with and remained on friendly terms with the Mighty Handful, also known as the Five, which was Miley Baller... Oh, God... Balakirev, uh, Cesar Kui, Modest Mersorgi, which I really enjoy, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, and Alexander Borodin, which I, I remember you mentioned the five during mm-hmm. your Korsakov. And even with their support, he wanted to maintain his individuality. Through time, he branched out into opera, and despite his sensitivity to criticisms, he continued to compose and release pieces that were becoming more well-liked due to the shift in the musical climate of the times. He traveled after a failed marriage and returned to Russia in 1884, where Tsar Alexander III confirmed upon him the Order of St. Vladimir, granting him, her- granting him hereditary nobility and a lifelong annual pension. Rough life. Yeah. It's got to be hard when when not only do you live in Russia, but it pays you. Right, exactly. That exploded his reputation, and despite him not being a very social person, he was required to be from that point forward. His last conduction was his Sixth Symphony in 1893. He passed away just under two weeks later and has written many famous pieces, including the aforementioned, or or will be mentioned, I should say, uh, piece and three ballets nearly everyone would recognize, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, and The Nutcracker. To anyone who knows anything about classical music, he's a household name. He really is. Um, Now, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which is the piece that we're talking about here, which I know, I think I just first mentioned that now. Yeah, I think you did. Um, I did that with one of mine, too. We got a flight to the Bumblebee. It's like almost the end, and it's like, by the way, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, 
This is Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy again, included towards the end of Act 2 of the Nutcracker Suite. Now, I've always loved the Nutcracker Suite as a whole, and it, to me it's one of my favorites. It's very much child wonderment of Christmas music. I mean, this is the definition of played at Christmas, because that's when the ballet is always on, yeah. and it's just perfect. Let's go ahead and let's dance with the Sugar Plum Fairy. As I was mentioning, too, I mean, it's childhood wonderment, it's Christmas dream, it's all rolled into one, and it's really hard not to like. I mean, it's a great piece of music. It appears in a ton of media, oftentimes around Christmas, and has made its way into other areas, including video games. As far as the widespread, widespread appeal, it doesn't hurt that it was included as background music in one of the best-selling puzzle games of all time, Tetris. Okay. And it's it's Tchaikovsky, man. I mean, he's one of the top ten, man, yeah. if not top five. He's a great composer. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, this is a great piece of music from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. It's one of my favorites of all time. I know we talked about the Nutcracker last week, and nothing has changed. I absolutely love it. This is Christmas in music. Not much more to say about it, other than if you haven't seen Nutcracker, make a point of it next year and go see it. You won't regret it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know it's ballet, and everybody's just like, I don't want to go to the opera ballet. You know what? Just calm your tits. Just do it because it's it, not like going to ballet though. No, it's not. I mean, there's yeah, there's dancing. Yeah. But it's got a good story to it. Hell, I mean, it's an easy and if you want to call it ballet, fine. But it's an easy ballet to follow too. And it's a good intro to it. So if yeah. you want to kind of get into the medium, in fact, most times either your local theater projection um, production team or even public television usually has a version of it on. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I know that we're months and months away from this, but make it a point, man, and. As a side note, um, I want to say that Trans-Siberian Orchestra and or possibly Mannheim Steamroller did their rocked-up version of this type of music. I think it's Trans-Siberian, and it's okay. amazing as well. Yeah. So I'm going to jump into my last one, which is more Tchaikovsky. But we're going to go a little bit of a different vein. So the 1812 Overture. Of course, Peter Tchaikovsky. Pete. Pete was a Russian composer of the Romantic period, some of whose works are among the most popular music in the classical repertoire. He was the first Russian composer whose music made a lasting impression internationally, bolstered by his appearances as a guest conductor in Europe and the United States. While his music has remained popular amongst audiences, critical opinions were initially mixed. Some Russians did not feel it was sufficiently representative of native musical values, and it's not Russian enough? Exactly. And expressed suspicion that Europeans accepted the music for its Western elements. Dun, dun, dun. It's like being, what is that, like being in Japan and you're like, you like American stuff too much, so Please. stop it. Yeah. In an apparent reinforcement of the latter claim, some Europeans lauded Tchaikovsky for offering music more substantive than bass exoticism and said he transcended stereotypes of Russian classical music. Others dismissed Tchaikovsky's music as, quote, lacking an elevated thought, unquote. Can you do better? <laughs> no, I can't. Can well, you? Well, no, that's just like, honestly, that'd be like the reply is like, well, my stuff sucks. Fine, bitch. You write something. Tell right, me how good yeah, it is. Yeah, so according to longtime New York Times music critic Harold C. Schoenberg, 
and derided its formal workings as deficient because they did not stringently follow Western principles. Let's see if you can see 1812 in this overture. The 1812 Festival Overture, popularly known as the 1812 Overture, is a concert overture written in 1880 by Russian composer Tchaikovsky to commemorate Russia's defense of its motherland against Napoleon's invading Grand Army in 1812. Typical American that I am, I thought about it was about our War of 1812. You know, and it's it just must be one of those happy coincidence, happy finger quotes coincidences yeah. because I thought the same thing. I'm just like. Oh, the French invaded Russia? Yeah. Because, the thing, I mean, yeah, like, because I know he talked about Western stuff, but I mean, really, would he, especially back then, would he really write something about America? No, probably not. Probably couldn't give two shits about it. It's like, what is this America crap that they're talking about? We got the French invading, for Christ's sakes. Right, yeah, and invading his homeland. Exactly. So the overture was conducted by Tchaikovsky himself in 1891 at the dedication of Carnegie Hall, in which was in what was one of the first times a major European composer visited the United States. The overture is best known for its climatic volley of cannon fire, ringing chimes, and brass fanfare finale. It has also become a common accompaniment to fireworks display on the United States Independence Day. The 1812 overture went on to become one of Tchaikovsky's most popular works, along with his ballet scores to The Nutcracker, The Sleeping Beauty, and Swan Lake. I can't say enough about Tchaikovsky. I could sit here and, and stumble through it and stuff. He's my number one. Okay. Tchaikovsky is my number one, has been for a long time. You know, and he's, he's a great composer. I think he is slightly underrated by some people. I mean, especially by those those that were there. But, I mean, it's and just this piece in particular is patriotism in a nutshell. Right. I mean, the, the fireworks or the cannons. I mean, if you've ever seen it or not really seen it played, but heard it performed with actual, like, legit cannons. Right. It's, it's hair-raising. It really is. Um, and I know there's actually, it's, I actually had written, it is a instrumental battle cry, which makes sense if it was because of that, and which was inspired by war. Of course, I thought it was a different war, but whatever. <laughs> um, some CD pressings of this actually use digital cannons. And there are warning labels on these CDs that say, do not play at too high a volume because these digital cannons will blow your speakers out. Really? Dead serious. In fact, I have a CD that says it. I'm like, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> But I didn't want to test it because they couldn't afford new speakers. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right, man. So let's jump into trivia. We've gone long today. We did. But it's it's a good long, though. I mean, it was good. I think so. I enjoyed this one. I did. I'm looking forward to number two, I'll be honest. Because there's plenty of classic out there. Oh, yeah. We, hell, we can even do 20th century and forward because I can think of at least three or four off the top of my head that will be modern classical or modern. I guess it would be instrumental now because yeah. it's not classical. But All right. So moving back. Franz Litz, Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2, has been in, in many features, often played by two characters who are fighting for the limelight or control of a situation. When it was used dueling piano style in the 1988 film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I'm hoping you've seen. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Who were the two opposites that were vying for top billing? I Okay, so I have Roger Rabbit and the gumshoe, the, the detective. The, Eddie. Eddie. 
That is not correct. It had Donald Duck on one side and Daffy Duck on the other. They were, Eddie was in the bar. It was okay. right before Jessica Rabbit came on stage, and it was Donald Duck and Daffy Duck playing different pianos against each other, playing oh God, this I'm going to have to go watch that again. It's been a long time. But it's a fantastic movie. It's probably one of the best live-action animation ones that they've done. Speaking of animation, have you seen the ad for the new Incredibles 2 yet? Yes. It looks so cool. If you want to drop us a line, tell us about this episode, what you thought of this episode, or any of our other episodes, feel free to do that. You can do that in several different ways. First of all, it's through email. You can email us at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. Now, if you want an update on Eclectic Media Project, go listen to Want to Hear Something Interesting, also on this channel. Um, we have an update at the end of our March 1st episode, which just dropped a couple days ago. So you can also find us on social media, on Facebook at POI Network or at Musically Challenged Podcast. And we're also on Twitter. That's MC Podcast 17 and that's going to be where we post the new episodes. If you want to go ahead and send us a playlist of seven, uh, 17, 14 different songs, 14 different artists. If you want to have a theme, great. If you want to just put random shit out there, that's all well and good. If you want to tweet that you think we're great, if you want to tweet that you think we suck ass, hey, that's all well and good. But guess what? You listened. So it's, it's a bonus for us anyways. Anyways, now... And we're starting to pick up on these listener outfits. I mean, we've got next week, the next three, is it next three or next four? Next three are all listeners, all guests. And then for our birthdays in April, we're doing something special. You want to tell them about that? Yeah, what we're going to do is we're actually going to do a playlist for each other. So right now, normally we do where, like, if Bob Smith sends us an email, hey, if there's a Bob Smith out there, you have to send us an email out because we just called you out. But... So if Bob sends us an email, we pick seven songs, he picks seven songs, and we split them up, right? Well, for Chad's birthday, I'm going to save him a little bit of work. So I'm going to do all 14 of the songs. He picks some, which is the hardest part he has to do, and then I'm going to talk about him and tell him how much his music sucks ass. Two weeks later, he's going to do the same thing for me. He will hear my 14 songs and tell me that my music taste is bullshit. No, I'm just going to tell you Van Halen sucks. Well, you've been telling me that since episode one, dude, so I'm, I'm immune to that by you're, now. You're ready for that now? Exactly. So that we got coming up, and that should be entertaining because I know what he's picked, but he has no idea what I've picked yet. So we'll see what happens. It's not going to be – we're going to try not to do songs we've already done. Yeah, because yeah. There was, he, a few, there was a few artists where I had to, like, really think about – Mm -hmm. what I was going to pick? Well, because if you think about it, I mean, we've done, I mean, we talked about this during our one year, which was already six episodes ago, where we talk, we've talked about a lot of different songs, a lot of different artists, where I could go back and be like, yeah, I want to do this song, but I'm like, no, we've already talked about that. Maybe even once, if not twice, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to throw other stuff out there. And I know you did the same thing. Yeah, so absolutely. That was the hardest part about doing the list, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, well, we've done way long on this one, and I'm going to finish this one because you always do. And that's if you have anything else to say, definitely just hit us up on one of our social media ways. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening, and you have yourself a great night. And last word for Chad. We'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.